All right, well, thanks for tuning in to week 10 and 11 of Theology 101. So <laughs> that was very quiet. Probably. Okay. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And you're probably wondering, okay, what happened if you didn't know? Last week, uh, completely lost my voice on Sunday. And then by Tuesday, it was still like, I, think I, I don't think I can do the theology He came class. to me and he was like, uh, we might not be doing it today. Yeah, like, so we canceled. Fair. But the last two weeks of theology uh, were meant to be like a part one and a part two of talking about redemption, like unpacking the the like our salvation and how it happens and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, well, if we come back for the last week and do part one, then the next week is like after Christmas. No one's going to come for part yeah. two. It's going to be three hours if we try and do it all in one. So we just thought, well, we'll record it and post it online, and whoever's interested can watch it. So this might be a long video, but so be it. So um, we're going to mic winger this. We are going to mic. If yeah, if you don't know, <laughs> he did like a seven and a half hour YouTube video on First Corinthians eleven. Yeah, and yeah, throughout the whole thing, he's like, I can't believe how long this is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, bear with me too. My voice is still coming back, but if all of a sudden you see like a cut, it's because we took a break to go get more tea. So anyways, um, like I said, we want to talk about redemption tonight, and I'm going to do a bunch of the teaching, but Corlin's here to... Uh, do a bunch of listening. Yeah, he's just going to sit quietly. We're going to turn <laughs> his mic off. Uh, no, but uh, you know in the class we try and get some interaction and questions and answers, and so Corlin's going to jump in whenever and add some stuff, or he might play devil's advocate a little bit and just be like, yeah, well, what about this, though, and, yeah. and stuff like that. So, um, like I said, we want to talk about redemption, and basically want to, want to ask, okay, what is redemption? Um, how does it work? How, how is the saving work of Jesus, so we talk about his death and his resurrection, how does God actually, like, apply that to us? Right, because I think we say things like, uh, "Yeah, Jesus died for my sins." Okay, but what does that actually mean? Right? How does Jesus being nailed to a cross two thousand years ago redeem me? So Christmas is a busy time. What's the last thing that we talked about while we were here? Was it the atonement? Was was uh, that the no, last thing we, we covered, or um, do we cover something? We talked else? about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, okay. That was two weeks ago, um, and what he does, and we'll get into that, I, and I think I mentioned it in the last class, because a big part of what the Holy Spirit does is involved in our redemption. Hmm. Um, he basically applies salvation to us, so that's why we didn't cover that a lot. Um, so basically, here's some structure, if you like <clears throat> to take notes or whatever. Um, we're going to talk about nine parts of our salvation. <laughs> it's going to be a long video. Yeah. Uh, and basically unpack the order of our salvation. Now, it might seem weird to talk about like... Yeah, that's not something we hear very often. ...and the order of how we're saved. But I think biblically, uh, it's kind of laid out for us like that. Like, here is the order of salvation, the things that happen in order. And, uh, and I'll preface it by saying, like, five out of the nine things all happen, like, almost instantaneously. Hmm. Um, but it's just helpful as we think about, you know, this is why they call it systematic theology. We want to systemize things and, and help us understand it. So, um, and so the goal really for this whole next couple hours is to lay out how incredible it is that God 
saves us and to show you, I think, his hand in every step of our salvation, uh, if that makes sense. Okay, so um, to start, before we get into <coughs> God's specific grace in saving us, we want to talk a little bit about something called common grace. Um, I don't know, have you ever heard of that, Corlin? Yeah, I've, I've heard of common grace. Okay, so how would you define it if someone asked you, what is, what is God's common grace? It's a, it's a fair question, a good question. I think usually... Uh, the way I would explain it or the way that I would understand it is short of using the term that you just used. It is God's (laughs) God's, common grace to everyone and everything. So like his grace that's common, but you're you're not wrong. So we laugh, but I think it is the term that is applied in theology around like God allows creation to continue to live, even Mm -hmm. though humanity is sinful. He would not have to do that. Uh, yep. and, but he allows it, and he gives his grace in that we can continue to live and, and hopefully find him through Christ. Yeah, so I would define it uh, as common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that aren't necessarily a part of salvation. What They're are these? Just, so when you say blessings, though, like yeah. I, I'm sure most of us know what you mean, but in case there's questions, what do you mean yeah. by give innumerable <clears throat> blessings? Yeah, and I'm going to unpack in kind of three different areas areas. Um, but I want to just clarify, like this is different from saving grace, right? Which we'll get into how God saves us. Um, because the recipients of God's common grace are unbelievers and believers alike. It's not like God only gives innumerable blessings to uh, only believers. Common grace is just grace. Exactly. What we said like just that we are breathing, we're alive, we're in a warm building. We both drove cars here. We ate food for breakfast. Those are just God's blessings that he gives to humanity. And so I'll give you some examples from Scripture. So physical, um, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. For he makes his son, like S-U-N, the son, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So for instance, God doesn't just make it rain on Christian farmers' fields, right? Yeah. He sends rain on everybody's fields, yeah. whether you're a Christian or not. That's just part of his common grace. Um, Acts 14, 16, and 17, it says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So he says, like, all the nations, God gave them food to eat, fruitful seasons. They had satisfied hearts, even though they didn't believe God or follow him. Uh, the last one, uh, <clears throat> Psalm 145, talks about the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he's made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. So it's this idea that, um, that God gives, when we talk about innumerable blessings, like he gives food. So we're not talking monetary blessings here. No, I don't think so. It's just the idea, like, exactly. Like, you don't, I love that Jesus says, like, the rain falls on a wicked farmer's field and a righteous farmer's field. Like, there's no, it's not as if God mm. says, you don't believe in me? Well, no rain for you. It's the idea of common grace is just, we all are alive. We have food to eat. The sun rises on, you know, you and me and Joe Blow over there. Like, everybody, like, it's just not salvific, meaning it's not related to our salvation, but it's just because God's so good that he just gives 
blessings mm. to to so, everybody. So, in a, in some ways, life, as in what we are experiencing now, would be the common grace. Like in general, the mm-hmm. the cycles that God has created, the things yep. that He. Okay. Even I would say, even our morality, like you, you talk about people who aren't Christians, and I often hear, you know, they're just good moral people. Hmm. Our morality, I think, is an example of God's common grace to all of us. So even in Romans two, um, it says, "For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them." So you would say, like, for most people, again, we could get into like tribes in the Amazon that don't think murder's wrong, but most people. They have a, a sense of morality, like mm. right and wrong. I probably shouldn't go kill my neighbor and steal his stuff. Yeah, And that would be, I think, an example of common grace. God gives uh, a basic morality to everyone. And Paul says, like, even Gentile, non-Jewish people who don't even have the law, they kind of know, like, that it's wrong to do certain things. Um, <clears throat> then you could get into, I mean, even intellectually or artistically it's not just christian people who are gifted to play music and paint and god gives those kind of blessings and gifts to everybody yeah and it's not just christians who do good things no totally so i think it's just really important because we're we're talking we're going to talk in a second about god's specific grace his salvific like grace connected to salvation but we have to emphasize that oh does that mean that god doesn't care about anybody else no of course not like so, do you, do you think, and maybe I'm jumping the gun, you might talk about this <laughs> in a bit, uh, this common grace that we're talking about right now kind of reminds me of that passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul says, for what can be known about yep. God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his intri- invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. Yep. So is that like? Would you say that that's a part of it? His common grace is is yeah. showing himself to creation through creation. Yeah, totally. I think I wrote that down in in a few verses. Romans one twenty one. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So it's like this idea is like they're without excuse. God's revealed himself through his divine attributes, through his power, through creation, and I think that's an example of common grace. Just because God loves all of humanity, he gives, I think it reflects greatly on God's part because no one can say, oh, so in order for me to be blessed by God, I have to believe in him. No, you're missing out on like salvific Mm. blessings, but God blesses believer and unbeliever alike with food, with family, with intellect, with artistic, like He's just so good. He doesn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think common grace is just, uh, you see it in, um, I'm just trying to go back to my notes here. Um, you see it all over the created realm. And I think it demonstrates God's goodness and his mercy to all of creation. And it demonstrates his justice over all of creation. Um, <coughs> and I think it also demonstrates God's glory, that He is just so good to all of uh all that he's made, right? Um, does that make sense? Any questions or things you want to add before we dive into some more specific 
maybe maybe people are already on the right track with thinking this, but I, I hear you keep saying like uh, God's common grace. It's like provision for food <coughs> and and a warm building and stuff like that. So we live in North America in yeah, an oil totally. field town that has lots of money and lots of ability to even with the rate of inflation right now, we can keep buildings warm and help people and stuff like that. But there are places that don't. Totally. So you you mentioned a tribe in Amazon who doesn't know that it's wrong to murder. Well, what about the the people around the world that don't have enough food? Like, it, where is there a line that can be drawn on God's common grace? Like, because some some of it, I would argue, is that I mean, people are sinful, and so yes. we we don't. Yeah. We don't actually take care of each other well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. even like we see that some here, but like I don't know where where do you draw those lines? Is there lines to be drawn? Is it attention? What do we what do we do? Yeah, with that's that? good. I think um, I think ideally before sin, um, it's the Garden of Eden, like all of our needs taken care of. Uh, but you're right, sin enters the world, and there's this tension where sin disrupts and fractures and twists and breaks all of God's good creation. So I think that there is tension where you go, okay, God's common grace is to all people, and yet sin has made a just a mess of everything. So I don't think we could look at people in poverty, say, and say, well, that's proof that God doesn't love them and doesn't show grace to them. Mm. No, that would be proof and evidence of sinfulness and brokenness. And, oh man, we could go down so many rabbit trails. <laughs> this is going to mm-hmm. be a 20-hour video. Because yeah. um, you could talk about the problem of evil and suffering. And if God is good, how can he allow these things to happen? And I think there is this, there's this tension that um, it's because of our own brokenness and sinfulness that the world is the way that it is. And yet in the midst of that... We still see examples of God's common grace. Even when I went to, to Zambia, um, yeah, they're very, very poor. And, you know, we, we visited a few villages, literally like, you know, tribes, if you want to call them that, like uh, villages out in the, you know, bush or whatever. And, yeah, they had a hut probably the size of my bathroom. And it was like, oh, yeah, 12 people live in here. Uh, and that's their entire house, mm. and it's kind of like, whoa. But you could also, you could still see evidences of God's common grace. They had family that loved each other. They still had access to drinking water, however hard it was to get that to them. They still had food that they could go and get. And So even if it, it's on a different scale, we, I think, are just spoiled over here. Yeah. And then we... Th- we're not normal in the West, right? Like we're the 1% of the richest, richest, richest. Yeah. But even in Zambia, it was like, you could still see evidences of God's grace, common grace on people. But you could also see, look at the effects of like our sinfulness and brokenness. Yeah. I like that you brought it back to the garden. Uh, I don't I don't know if this can close off our thoughts, but I, I think that it's good that you brought it back to the garden because our God's common grace, his provision, I think... The way my mind is looking at it right now is that it's it's like his provision and his common grace is the fact that we are experiencing his creation, which was good before sin entered mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and distorted it. Um, and so even just an existence in his creation is a gift. Totally. Uh, the ability to experience that. Uh, yep. And then also uh, the fact that we are to image God. 
yep. is something that's coming to mind of of how his common grace would be shown because if we are to do that well like you said over there they still have families that love them and and not I again I recognize not every single person totally. there will have a family that loves them not every person here in Fort St. John does right yeah, but I that's think, where yeah. sin distorts it right yeah. so uh, I think bottom line if you're like breathing in and breathing out God is showing you common grace hmm so bottom line, we could get into all like levels of yeah. blessing, but I think bottom line, because and we're gonna get to this in a second. Like Job talks about, you know, if God decided to remove His Spirit, everything would die. So the fact that we're like alive and my heart is beating right now, I hope, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yours is, and yeah. we're breathing, like that's an evidence of God's common grace to us that we're mm. alive. Like that's huge. So, <clears throat> um, we could we could. Maybe go we'll for stop there hours because we could go into all sorts of philosophical ideas yeah. of you know but what about this scenario and what about that scenario i think bottom line um the point is besides god's um saving grace which is amazing which we're going to dive into god shows unbelievable common grace to all of creation all mm -hmm. of humanity so okay that was believe it or not that was the easy part uh so now we <laughs> want to dive into god's specific grace related to our salvation through the work of Jesus. Nine um, steps or stages or aspects, whatever you want to call it. So I'm just going to list all nine, and then we'll walk through them one at a time. So we have election, which is God, God's choosing of people to be saved, which I know you're all... <gasps> Let's talk about that, but after you list. Uh, the gospel call, which is the proclaiming of the gospel message regeneration, which is being born again, conversion, which is faith and repentance, justification, which is our legal standing before God, adoption, which is uh, membership into God's family, sanctification, which is a, uh, you know, becoming more like Jesus, perseverance, which means remaining a Christian, and glorification, which is receiving a resurrection body. Okay, so lots of big words. Steps two through six. Um, so how many? Two, three, four, five. So five, five steps. Steps two through six almost happen instantaneously. Like it's mm -hmm. that's the I became a Christian. Um, and then steps seven through eight are they work themselves out through our life lives and then step nine won't happen until you die or until jesus returns so we want to start with the probably the most confusing and the most controversial one because confusing because i mean we we come at it with human reason and human rationality and so if you remember when we talked about jesus being fully human and fully divine we come at that going okay how can jesus have two natures that seem so contradictory how can jesus know everything and yet grow in wisdom like the mm -hmm. bible like there there was an there's aspects of that that we went like oh man our human reasoning alone can't fully explain this so let me define <clears throat> election for you and then we'll just i have a bunch of passages that i do want to read because i think it's really important to show this is not just andrew's idea of uh how god does things this is thoroughly shown throughout scripture so here's a definition of election election is an act of god before creation in which he chooses people to be saved 
not on account of any merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So maybe I'll say that again because if you're, people take notes. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses people to be saved, not on account of any merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So already I know there's a few things in that that you go like, okay, it's an act where God chooses people. I wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not based on anything in us, so it's completely unconditional, like, and it's only because of God's sovereignty. So what I... What I want to do, do you already have a question? <laughs> you, go ahead. I want to I wanna show you, there's probably about 10 verses, uh, and I, I hand-selected 10 out of 50 or whatever, mm-hmm. that, that clearly talk about God choosing people. And then I want to talk about, okay, what's the balance then of us making choices and being held responsible for rejecting or accepting Jesus? Does that make sense? Or, yeah. or what were you going to say? I, I was just, I had a couple of questions. One, I, well, statement. One, I think it's a good place to start with Scripture. Yeah. Uh, two, I was just going to ask, I'm curious, when you're looking for Scripture about these things, uh, do you look Old Testament, New Testament, both? Did you try to balance it out? I, just <clears throat> out of curiosity, because I, like, yeah. when we talk about things like election, I think it's good to have a balance from Old Testament and New Testament Personally, I don't know. I'm curious what your mm. thoughts are on that. Yeah, I the all the examples I have are primarily from the New Testament, um, dealing with like the new covenant in Jesus. Because yeah, the idea of election is present throughout the Old Testament because mm-hmm. God sovereignly chose Israel out of all the nations of the world, not because of anything to do with them, solely because it's his choice to be his people through which Jesus would come. So in my mind, election in the Old Testament is slightly different than election in the New Testament. The concept is the same. Uh, And there's people who disagree with me, people who say, no, Israel is elect. All Israel will be saved in the end because God chose them. Mm -hmm. And his promises in the Old Testament will not change. But I go, I think election in the Old Testament, the choosing of Israel as a people was a foreshadow of election through Jesus and salvation through Jesus. So I don't think necessarily just because, hey, I'm an Israelite. I get to go to heaven, not because of Jesus, but because I'm an Israelite. I go, eh. mm. if you surrender to Jesus, then yeah, totally. So mm. all my examples are, are essentially from um, the New Testament. So I'll give you a few. So Acts 13, um, the, uh, verse 48, the apostles are preaching the gospel. And it says this, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So you go, <clears throat> that's an interesting way to say that. Not just as many who believed, believed. Uh, scripture says, no, they were appointed to eternal life. Appointed by whom? By God, I believe. So Romans 8, 28 through 30 also says this, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's Paul saying, 
God foreknew people. He predestined them. He called them to salvation. He justified them, and he glorified them. So you get this idea, okay, God's involved in this somehow. Um, Romans 9, <clears throat> 10 through 13 says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither either good, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but also, or sorry, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the young, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there's an example of Old Testament election where God uh, we're told, chose Jacob and not Esau. Well, why? Because it's his, it's his right to choose, mm. right? Whom his people come through. So Paul's reflecting, Romans 9 is Paul reflecting on an Old Testament concept, but he's, he's bringing it into this whole topic of our salvation. So even in Romans 11, um, 7 and 8, he says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and eyes that would not hear down to this very day. Um, Ephesians 1, <coughs> excuse me, verses 4 to 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And Paul's writing to Christians. He's saying, God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5 says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Second um, Timothy 1.9, speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I have four more, and then we'll stop. 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then twice in the book of Revelation, it talks about the book of life. Uh, I'll read the, the second one, Revelation 17. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So in Revelation, John, he writes that those people whose names aren't written in the book of life before the world began they'll turn to the beast and worship him. So, I mean, <clears throat> I want to get your thoughts, but just, I mean, you see there's a dozen examples of God's choosing of people for salvation. I mean, Paul says, God chose you. Peter says, God chose you. Um, you see examples of, uh, I didn't uh, say it, but Lydia in the book of Acts, uh, it says that she was listening to uh, Paul preach and God opened her heart so that she could believe. Hmm. 
So there's an example of, okay, God's fingers are, are in it, right? For lack of a better term. Uh, before the creation of the world, even, it says in, in Ephesians. Before God created anything, he predestined people to come to Jesus. So I want to know your thoughts. Oh, boy. Uh, and I'll get into some, some explanations, I guess, of... But I don't know, like, questions that come to my mind is, well, isn't this just fatalistic then? Like, isn't this, yeah. isn't this just a machine that, like, what about my free will? Yeah, I, I think, think that's probably the biggest question, right, that people have. Okay, if God chooses me, then I don't have a choice at all. Yeah, I think that, would, <clears throat> like, when it comes to the term election, like, I, I just wrote down some of the, uh, the I don't know what I'd call them. Not, I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but I wrote down some of the trigger words that were in those passages <laughs> yes, totally. because they, they trigger those kinds of thoughts. It's my <laughs> thought behind calling them that. Yeah. So first of all, uh, you said it's called election. Um, Acts In Acts 13, there was a word appointed. Yeah. Uh, Romans, uh, there was foreknew. Uh, even Romans 9, uh, I think it was Romans 9, where he's talking about Esau and Jacob. Esau I hated. So that word yeah. hated, like what does that mean? Uh there's also in Ephesians that he chose us. Uh, there's a lot of passages that you listed that he chose, were chosen, he chose, uh, predestined for his purpose <coughs> yeah. of grace. Like, yeah, we're elect exiles, chosen. There's the book of life. Like, what when we're reading these words are like, I guess the question that does come to mind is: Is our understanding of these words the same as what the biblical authors intended? Mm-hmm. So we have a, a English translation. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not coming at that from any angle. I'm just genuinely oh, yeah. curious. Like when we talk predestination, um, we have a, as with anybody in any part of the world, we have a like a specific to our region understanding of how we would use certain words. Yeah. Uh, even my wife and I use different words in different places, yeah. right? And have arguments <laughs> over it because of yeah. it. So I'm just curious. We're like when we're reading these things and we put all these together. I mean, to me, I think it shows a pattern. But I'm just curious. How do you? Yeah, I think it clearly. I think most. Uh, okay, all of those reactions. Oh, this cord is. All of those reactions are normal. Like reactions to those words, isn't? To, in... Yeah, to go. I think humanly speaking, the first reaction usually is. That's not fair. Hmm. Um, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, I think that that's probably a normal human response. But I want to go, okay, I want to approach this biblically, not just, it just feels like it's, it's wrong. I go, okay, well, there's lots of things that I read biblically that my own feelings go, ooh, I don't like that. But that doesn't hmm. mean it's not true, right? So... I'll just keep unpacking this a little bit because <clears throat> really to understand God's choosing of people for salvation and yet our responsibility to either rece- uh, receive, re- reject or accept Jesus, it's, it's a bigger view of God's providence. Um, and I, it's funny, we just recorded a podcast about this, but whatever, so be it. Um, God's providence means that God is continually involved in all of creation. He keeps creation existing. He cooperates with his creation, and he is directing his creation to fulfill his purposes and plans. So short order, 
providence, God's providence means God is in control of everything. Um, I've heard John Piper say there's not an atom in the universe that is outside of God's control. And I would agree with that, that God is providentially, he's in control. And I'm not going to read all of them because I wrote down, you know, 15 passages. But uh, Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, meaning he, he's holding the universe together. Um, Colossians 1 says Jesus um, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's this idea that Jesus is literally, he's holding the universe together. Um, Acts 17, Paul says about God, in him we live and we move and we have our being. So the fact that you uh, are breathing, that you can get up and walk around, you move around, you have your being, it's actually in God. He's holding that together. Um, Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah says that God, I'm, just, I'm trying to do the shortened version yeah. of reading all these, yep. but Nehemiah says that God preserves all things. So the idea of preserving means I'm actually keeping this thing alive, right? I'm preserving it. Um, I mentioned Job 34, but Job says that if God would just decide to remove his spirit from all of creation, uh, everything would die. Hmm. So it's the idea that we're alive right now, not just us, but all of creation is alive because God's spirit is keeping it alive. He's, that's that's an, an example of his providence, right? Um, and then God God directs and he guides things to accomplish his purposes. Um, Job 37 talks about the fact that God tells the snow and the rain when to fall. He tells animals where to go. He tells the wind and the clouds what to do. Uh, Psalm 135 says, whatever God pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Psalm 104 says, God causes grass to grow. And I know that scientifically we go, well, photosynthesis causes that. Well, God is the one who's making those things happen, right? I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying that, oh, it's not evaporation and then rain. No, of course not. But God is the one who's, who's doing all those things, right? Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a denial of science, right? You know, it's the Sunday school. What causes the snow to fall? Jesus! Well, okay, we know the scientific process is behind it, but what I'm saying is God is the one who's... Is the cause of those scientific... He's the cause of those things. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, Job 12 says God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. So why did the nation of Rome expand and grow? Because God allowed it to happen, right? He's providentially ruling. Um, Proverbs 16, I know this is a lot of scripture, but I want to show you from scripture... Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast. So that's when they would... Uh, I, love, I actually love this verse. The lot is cast in the lap. So the idea of rolling dice or however, rolling stones or rocks to make decisions. But every decision is from the Lord. Yeah. So when I roll a six to make a decision, oh, sweet, I rolled a six. It's not chance. God made that happen, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is a wild thing to it's think totally, about. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, right? Uh, Ezra talks about God making people joyful, turning the hearts of kings... Uh, Proverbs 21 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. And I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. Um, the Bible is clear that everything that happens is under the control of God, um, including our salvation, right? The, the Bible doesn't make a delineation that goes, okay, fine. God makes the snow fall and he makes the rain fall and he makes the grass grow and he makes nations 
enlarge and shrink, but he's hands off when it comes to our salvation. No, the, the picture is God's in control of, of everything. Um, and yet, right, I want a big, a big yet, uh, the Bible does not teach deism that, that God's kind of hands off. The Bible doesn't teach pantheism that, oh, everything is God. The Bible doesn't teach chance or randomness like that God's not in control. Oh, you rolled a six. That's a chance. That's a random thing. Not even in Ecclesiastes? Uh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> uh, uh, and then the Bible doesn't teach impersonal fate or determinism. So right, so I, I want to be clear. We read passages, God's in control of anything, everything, then it's just determinism. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't teach that. Yeah. Because at the same time where God is in control of everything, you walk, you live, you move, you have your being, everything is in God's control. And yet, you see throughout Scripture, people make decisions. People are held responsible for the very real decisions that they make. It's not... I've heard someone say, well, it's just an illusion of free will. It's not an illusion. God and the Bible holds these two uh, seeming contradictions in perfect tension. I want you to talk, talk a little bit about that, the, the idea of a paradox. I think that's helpful. Paradox, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, I think it's best, like for me to understand these things, I think I look at them as a paradox. So like you said, a lot of, like even even for me when I hear these things, I can at times feel like it is a contradiction. And some of you are like, yes, it is a contradiction. Sure. Um, I, I think that to accurately read Scripture, we have to set aside those assumptions of what we understand <coughs> to actually be happening. Um, because God is bigger than us. Mm-hmm. He is more wise than us. And, and Scripture, the inspired Word of God, is meant to be people with free will writing about their God who is also in control of everything. Yeah. So like, yeah, and you were saying that that quote, and I'll paraphrase it by what was the scholar's name? Uh, Parker, Palmer. Parker Palmer. I I can pull it up right away. As I have it because it's it's one that has helped me to understand. So yeah, because uh, a paradox, it's a it's a thing that seems like a contradiction, but it's not either or. It's both and. Yeah. So Parker Palm- so Palmer yeah, puts it this that? way: a paradox is a statement that seems self contradictory, but in reality may express a possible truth that cannot that I cannot see from my limited perspective. So Niels Bohr, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, said it this way, the opposite of, of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. Yeah. The spiritual journey proceeds with a trembling <clears throat> confidence that God's truth is too large for the simplicity of either or. It can only be apprehended by the complexity of both and. Yeah, that's really, really good. So we... Uh, for me, that helps because it, like, we do see that God is sovereign. Like, he he uses nations and calls them His hand in these things. He's yep. obviously using these nations for things that we would look at and say, "Well, that was horrible that that yep. happened." Yep. And yet, God is not guilty of sin. He's not nope. guilty of wrong in these things. Yeah. Um, and yep. then we also <coughs> see that. God is going to hold those very nations to account for the things that they did to his people. Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So throughout the Minor Prophets, you see God warning, okay, Babylon is coming. But he repeatedly says, I am the one who's sending Babylon. Babylon is my tool to punish my people. Nowhere does he say, like, oh, it's just lucky that Babylon invaded. He says, no, 
he calls King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to paraphrase it because I know I'm not going to get it right, but he says basically that King Nebuchadnezzar is a sword in my hand. God says, I'm using him to accomplish my deal. And then he says to Habakkuk, but don't worry, I'll punish Babylon for all the sin they do. And we go, but God... You're yeah. using them. It it and makes he, it feel like we're puppets. Yeah. It's, so I think a, the idea of a paradox is when you take two things that seem uh, antithetical, two things that seem contradictory, but they are both true. So I'll give you an example. Um, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. If we approach that with just strict human reasoning, Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. He's not 50-50. He didn't lay aside it's divinity. Not modalism, it's he, not. he is uh, fully omniscient, meaning, which one is omniscience? Power? All-knowing. He, Omnipot- he's omni- omnipotent omniscience is, is all-knowing. Omniscience yeah. is, I always mix up yeah. omnipotence and omniscience. Jesus is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Yeah. And yet he grew in and wisdom and And yet he grew in wisdom and stature. So you go, how does that work? Well, because he had two natures. So I, one guy quoted, he said that the person of Jesus is taking two contradictory natures and putting them together in one person. Yeah. But if we approach it and say, uh, those are opposite things, they can't go together, well then we miss out on who the person of Jesus is, right? So there's lots of paradoxes when it comes to the Christian faith. The fact that God is one God who exists as three persons, and each person is fully God, and yet there's only one God. So we would go, that's impossible, right? Yeah. Um, you either have three gods or you have one God, and yet Scripture says, nope, we have one God who exists as three persons. So I think paradoxes are helpful because what they allow us to do as followers of Christ is they allow us to read Scripture, see the tensions that are there, and seek the wisdom that is in those tensions. Yeah, Instead totally. of trying to, because I agree, our, I, I want to make it so that it makes sense to me. But if everything made sense to me, then I would be God. Yeah, totally. If there's no mystery. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I, I'm not saying that to say that we then throw these conversations to the wayside. No. Nope. I say that because I think um, there's so much wisdom in Scripture that, forces you to try and find again maybe the words aren't the correct words but they force you to try and find a balance between a path where you're trying to to yeah. hit the center and yep. i don't i don't mean that that it's um like well what's the point in that like how can we ever find that i think that that's part of the the amazing blessing that god has given us that he allows us the free will to be able to do those things while yeah. being providential over them yeah so i think uh, a couple of thoughts that um, like free will, we have to define free will correctly and biblically because when we say free will, often we say free will can only be free if God is not involved at all in it. I've literally, like in conversations with people, free will is not really free will if God's providential over, if God's in control of everything, Mm -hmm. then then logically there is no free will. And I Mm -hmm. go, you're using a definition of free will that is not in the Bible. Free will in the Bible. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, in order for you to be free, you must be outside of God's control. Because if we were outside of God's control, 
we would be dead. I mean, mm. the Bible says, yeah. if, if you want to be free from God's providence, you are dead then, right? Yeah. So um, s- Scripture holds intention. You are fully under God's providence and His control, and yet you make willing choices that have real effects. You, and you're held accountable. And you're held them. accountable. And we, humanly speaking, go, that's not fair because it feels like it's a contradiction, but you just, you have to hold this paradox in tension yeah. where I go, uh, did God know that that was going to happen? Yep. Did I still make a decision to do that? Yep. yep. It's both, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, even biblically, exactly how God's providential control works with our willing and significant choices Scripture nowhere tries to explain it to us. Yeah. It just says both of these things are true. And we go, oh, shoot. <laughs> well, it would be great if there was a verse that said, let me explain it for you. Yeah. Okay. Here's on, how Paul. it works. Come on, Paul. Why don't you uh, write, another, write letter. another letter? But bi- the Bible just says, here are two truths that happen at the same time. And Scripture doesn't explain hmm. um, how it goes together. But we want to just... I don't ever want to go beyond what the scriptures say because I know that there's there's scholars and I, I think there's still brothers and sisters in Christ, but there's an attempt to explain away all of the mystery of it so that we go, okay, it's neat, it's tidy, it fits, and often, if I can be like a little bit blunt, it's it's a pride thing because then it's, now I feel like I'm fully in control and God's, ha- God's hands are out of it. And it's like, but the you, Bible doesn't... I don't know that those would be the words that they use, but no, I, think, I no. think that you're... It is something, even I think most theologians, most Christians have to be cautious of not being prideful of their understanding oh, totally. of Scripture. Like On, we're, yeah, yep. From, from both sides. And I think that's what you're saying, but mm-hmm. I want to make sure that's mm-hmm. vocalized. Um, because yep. we all have to learn. We're all finite beings yep. trying to learn about an infinite God. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I <coughs> yeah. I think the other thing that this it brings up in my mind is uh, R.C. Sproul. I listened to something from him about the sovereignty of God uh, and our free will, and he just started listing off biblical stories in order. And he kept, like, he started with the coat of many colors. Mm-hmm. And he just kept listing. He basically was like, without a coat of many colors, there wouldn't have been Joseph sold into slavery. Without Joseph slo- sold into slavery, there wouldn't have been Joseph to save his brothers from the famine. Without saving the brothers from, and just like, Israel kept going through all of scripture. Yeah. And was like, it's it seems wild. It seems more unlikely that God would leave his purposes to bring out salvation through his people totally. to chance of all of these things. Totally. Um, and that's that's a, where I think I can see that tension the most clear. I'm not saying that I understand it fully. No. I just see it. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, yeah, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers, Joseph says to his brothers, you what you intended into, yep. for evil, God intended for good. And we look at those things and we say, wait, how can God work out evil for good without being guilty of it? Well, uh-huh. right there, Joseph seems to pretty clearly say that God meant it for good. So uh, another, the, the example that I look at to try and see clearly, again, not saying I understand it, just saying that I see the two truths yeah. um, is Jesus on the cross. Yeah, I was going to read that. So Acts 2, yeah. Peter's preaching to a whole crowd of Jewish people. 
Um, and he says this, um, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, I mean, you want to talk about hmm. providence and free will existing in the same verse. Peter's like, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned the death of Jesus, and yet he, he says to all of the Jewish people, you, you killed us. And yeah. notice that, that no one says, well, we're off the hook because God planned it. Yeah. No, they're guilty, right? And yet, God planned it. So, I mean, there's lots of examples. The Joseph one is really good. Pharaoh is a great example. Uh, God specifically says to Moses, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that my glory will be known among the nations. And then I think out of... I can't remember. This is me spitballing. Out of 14 times it talks about Pharaoh's heart, it's like 10 times it says God hardened it, four times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Yeah. So you go, well, did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh heart did did God providentially harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh free yeah. willy? Nope, that's free not will. a word. <laughs> that's a movie. Did he fr- <laughs> cut edit did he freely choose to harden his own heart it's both like god i know that's so stupid but uh did pharaoh choose or did god choose both yeah and pharaoh's held responsible for what he did right so i i we can probably go on for hours about this this. yeah um i there is one other thing that i want to bring up um often we talk about that romans chapter 9 uh, verse 12, where Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I, I always find it interesting that people cut off there for this conversation. Because um, I actually think that it's a disservice to what... Maybe not a disservice. disservice. Yeah. I think it's better to keep going, because Paul continues to explain. Um, so in verse 14 then, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Uh, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, yeah. but on God who has mercy. Yes. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth like you just read. Yeah, totally. So then he has mercy on whoever, whoever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. Yeah. And then, like Paul incredibly wise man says you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will yeah like paul is already seeing that this is an argument that's going to raise yes. up who can resist his will why yeah. would he what's point, the point why would what? he say i'm yeah. guilty if he's the one that did it yeah and paul sa- paul has this to say to that but who are you oh man <laughs> to answer back to god Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Yeah. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Uh Uh-huh. So there again, we come into that common grace where God 
graciously allows sinners to live for his purposes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good because it's not wrong to like wrestle with these things, but I love that oftentimes when people begin to accuse God, and that's what it is. I think it's an accusation that God, you are unfair. God, you are not just. God, mm-hmm. you you cannot be in control because that means X, Y, and Z. Or God, um, you're not loving or whatever. You see example after example in the Bible that God shows up to people and says, um, who do you think you are? Right? Not in a not in a mean way, but if he's the God of the universe. Yeah. I mean, so Job, for example. Job starts com- to complain. God, I'm a righteous person. Why is all of this happening? It's not fair. Why am I being punished? And God shows up, and God in no way attempts to go, okay, Job, here's what I was doing. Yeah. He says to Job, uh, stand up, dress yourself like a man, and then essentially goes, um, excuse me, this is my paraphrase, this is how I see God saying it, were you there yeah. when I created everything? Job, are you the one that tells the animals where to move and the snow? And at the end of the day, Job goes, oh, you're right. Who am I to question God? Habakkuk is a great example. Yeah. God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to use Babylon to, to punish Israel. And Habakkuk goes, this is a, a paraphrase, that's not fair. How could you use a worse nation than us, God, to punish us? That doesn't seem fair. And basically, God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, if you knew all the things that I'm doing behind the scenes, you wouldn't even believe. Basically, you're not God. Yeah. And Habakkuk ends by uh, essentially almost uh, the same kind of thing. I want to read it because it's good. Oh, Habakkuk is one of those, like, <laughs> I'm going to flip by it nine times. Yep. Zephaniah, Habakkuk. Um, <clears throat> he basically ends by saying, though the fig tree blossoms or should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off, there no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. So basically, Habakkuk ends by going, you're right, God, I don't know. Paul says the same thing. People are going to go, that's not fair, God. And Paul says, like, who are you to to question the creator? Right. And it's not like it's not a it's not a you're not allowed to ever ask questions. But it's when we come to God, critical of God, saying you are unloving, you are not fair. God seems to always show up and go. Who are you <laughs> yeah. to say those kind of things, I, right? So, um, yeah, you were going to say something? I was going to move on. I, I got one yeah, yeah, yeah. final okay, thought. Sure. Um, we, this is one of those tensions that we are... So when we talk about being made in the image of God, there are, we talked about it earlier in theology, how there's attributes that he has and he holds. Yes. But being made in the <clears throat> image of God we seem to be able to express certain parts of those attributes, but not at all equally to who Yahweh is. So, so we are able to show love. God is a God of love. He is love. He is justice. He is power. We can, we can show those things as a, as a shadow of him, but nowhere near completely like he does. 
And we seem to be okay with those things, right? We can be like, well, we are able to be present, but we can't be omnipresent. So that makes sense. We can go to multiple places, but we can't do it all at once. Yep, uh, that makes sense. I'm okay with that. Yeah. We can show power, but nowhere near what God can do. Great. We can show love. Great. I know I'm a sinner. I can't do it perfectly. I'm okay with that. Yeah. God is free to do what he wants. Yes. I am free what I do, to do what I want. Well, no, only if God isn't free to do what he wants. <laughs> yeah. To me, I, it's just something yeah. that I've noticed over yeah. the last little bit where yeah. I'm like, that's interesting that that seems to be the one, even for myself, where I'm like, well, no, that can't be. Yeah. It's like, well, God is free and he has created his people free, but we are still only an image of who he is, sure. which means our freedom is not like God's freedom. Mm-hmm. Not, not fully, right? Yeah. And maybe that's more confusing than helpful, but I, for me, that's helped to be like, uh, yeah. yeah, stepping back and saying, right, I am not the creator. I have been yeah. made in the image of God. I've been made this way. I I experience it every day where I have the choice to do things, right? Totally. Like, even if, yeah, if we want to go there, you and I have chosen to say everything that we have cho- chosen to yeah, say today. Totally. And yet, also Did scripture God would teach that God would know and has known that we would do these things. Yep, totally. And I think that's a tension that we can actually sit comfortably in oh, and without so. having to yep. deny. So anything. a couple of other thoughts and then we'll move on. Uh, so just to recap, election is God choosing people before the foundation of the world to save. And yet it is not presented in scripture as fatalistic or deterministic or unfair the gospel is proclaimed to everyone and everyone is held responsible for either accepting or rejecting Jesus. And yet anyone that comes to Jesus comes because they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Right. It's this tension of like, but then they didn't have a choice. Yes, they did. Uh, God's providence in his election of people is held in tension with our choice and our accountability for the choices that we make. And I think part of it is, is that there are aspects of God's will that are hidden to us. Yeah. There's things that he does. Like I'll give you uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Hmm. There's certain things that God does that we go, I don't understand it, but I trust who God is, and he ha- he's working out his will. And yet there's parts of his will that he's revealed to us through his word, and then we go, okay, I can, yeah. I can do that. So a couple of thoughts. Election throughout the Bible is presented as actually as a comfort. Like Romans 8.28 says that we know that for those who love God, so those who are elected, called, chosen, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So election is not meant, it's in scripture, it's not, it's funny. Like I love that scripture doesn't present it as this big debate and argument. It's like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Scripture's like, yeah. you were chosen. That means that all things are going to work together for good in the end. Like, you were called by God. This is amazing. Yeah. Uh, election is presented in Scripture as a reason to praise God. Ephesians 1 says, He predestined you to the praise of His glorious grace. First Thessalonians, 1, First Thessalonians 1 says, We give thanks because God chose you. Second Thessalonians 2 says, We give thanks because God chose you. Like, it's meant to be Man, God is amazing that he chose us. This is unbelievable. Actually, it's um, election is presented as an encouragement to evangelism. Because I've heard it the opposite. I've heard mm-hmm. people say, well, if God cho- chose people, then we don't have to tell anyone about God. Uh, They'll about. just come to knowledge. But listen to this. Um, 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says this, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation mm-hmm. that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, why am I shipwrecked and beaten and whipped and starving? He says, I'm doing all of this for the sake of the elect that they would come to know the salvation that's theirs. Yeah. Um, Romans 10 says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's never presented in scripture as, well, God's going to call people so we don't have to do anything. It's, it's like, no, go and preach the gospel. Yeah. I love, a great example is in Acts 18. Paul is in a city and he's facing opposition. And um, I think it's, it's described that like a handful of people have believed the gospel. Not very many. Um, I'm going to actually see if it says it because I don't remember. He's in Corinth. Um, it says they're, uh, they opposed and reviled him like for him sharing the gospel. And there was a man named Titius Justus and Crispus who believed. So there's like a couple people who believed. Mm-hmm. But massive amounts of people in Corinth are opposed to the gospel. And then it says this in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Hmm. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God. So notice that God doesn't say, okay, Paul, move on to a different city. I've got lots of people, but I'll just call them. I'll just bring them to myself. He says, no, Paul, I have many people in this city. So stay and preach the gospel so that they hear and believe. So um, I think it's an, an example that God invites and commands every person to repent and yet those who come to christ have been chosen by god before the foundation of the yeah. world right um i i have one more question it, yeah. it came up as we we're talking this last little bit i don't know maybe this will close us off maybe not <laughs> we're gonna be here can of worms um oh, if if it's too big of a can of worms maybe we can do a podcast on it and then okay fair can go. Yep. is election the same as salvation um, the reason I ask this uh, is because even in the verse that you were just reading, I can't remember the passage specifically about how he has lots of people, right? And yeah. uh, you were talking about how Paul wants to preach to the elect that they may believe. Yep. It's it's worded, at least the way I'm hearing it, it's worded as if the elect don't believe already, right? Yes. And so the may, is that like a question of like, hopefully they believe, or is it like, as soon as they hear the gospel, they'll just believe? Because I, like, yep. even even if I look back into the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was elected to be God's people, mm-hmm. but only a few select people made it into the promised land. Sure. Right? Yep. So, like, is there any similarities? Is there any patterns through scripture that we could see for stuff like that, where, like, the elect... I, I don't know. I'm yeah. I, I'm not necessarily saying this is what it is. I'm just trying to yep. process so, and have conversation. So I believe that those whom God has elected, uh, he will bring into his kingdom. His, pl- his plans cannot and will not be thwarted. Hmm. So I don't think at the end when Jesus returns, there'll be anybody left who goes, oh, I was elected, but I didn't believe. Dang it. Hmm. I think God, he will accomplish his purposes. And yet there's this tension where Paul's like, I have to stay and preach the gospel so that the elect will hear. Hmm. So it's, the, again, this, yeah. you could say, well, if God's going to choose people, then I don't have to do anything. But the Bible doesn't present that case. 
the Bible presents the truth that God will accomplish his purposes, and yet you got to go because how will they hear, will they hear unless if someone... you don't go? Yep. So it's, again, it's yep. this, uh, so um, th- we're still on the first one. <laughs> this is going to be ridiculous. So, so here's to summarize, right? This is step one in our salvation. Election is God's sovereign choice of people to save before the foundation of the world solely because of his grace and mercy, and yet all people are commanded to repent and believe the gospel, and you're held accountable for either accepting or rejecting Jesus. And, and yet, once someone comes to faith, we can be confident God chose you before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Okay, so that's election. <laughs> Boom. Closed off for today. And there, if, you're, if you watch and you do have more questions, yeah. please send them to us. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, we'll, um, we'll uh, record a podcast or something. And we actually just did. Yeah. about the balance between God's sovereignty and free will. So so God chooses people before the foundation of the world. Secondly, this is number two, the gospel call. Um, I would call this, this is the effective calling of God. And it's actually just what you just talked about. Um, you know, will, will the elect come to faith? Well, the gospel call is, is God speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to saving faith. So there's a human aspect and a divine aspect. The gospel call is you and I going out to lost people and proclaiming the gospel, and yet the Holy Spirit partners with us, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. to actually draw people to God, Mm -hmm. right? So I already already, uh, gave the example, but Acts 16 of Lydia is a perfect example. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she had a concept of God. And then it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So you have Paul. He's doing his part in proclaiming the gospel. Mm -hmm. But God um, does his part by opening Lydia's heart so that she can understand it. So there's a few elements that go into a gospel call. Um, you have to, one, explain the facts concerning salvation. So when you present the gospel, you must talk about, okay, all people have sinned. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus died to pay that. I totally lost my place. <laughs> Jesus died to pay that penalty. So there's certain just facts about salvation that when you talk to someone about the gospel, you're saying like, yes, uh, everyone's sinned. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus uh, died to pay the penalty. And then there's an invitation to respond in faith and res- in repentance. Um, there's a few examples. I mean, Jesus in Romans 11 says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Um, John 1 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Revelation 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. So there's this, there has to be this invitation. Because, right, you can't just present the facts of salvation and go, okay, I presented the gospel. There has to be this, like, right, it's like in Acts 2 when the crowds are like, what do we do? Yeah. Okay, you told us the facts. But what do we do? And Peter says, repent and believe the gospel, right? Yeah. And be baptized. Um, and then there's this promise of forgiveness. If you repent and believe in Jesus, I mean, 
John 3.16, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Yeah. Um, that would be the gospel call. So I don't know. Do you have... That one's I, a little bit yeah, more Yeah, I was going to say, that one, that one is good you chose that one next because that was pretty quick. Uh, I, think, I think that one makes good sense to me. Yeah. I'm not... It makes per- perfect sense as... Yeah, as followers of Christ, the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, go and make disciples. Yep. How do you do that? Preach the gospel. Yeah. When people believe, teach them what God has ordained. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think even the next one, like so, like I said, you know, Numbers two, three, four, five, six, we're talking about an order of things, but oftentimes it's like they happen immediately so so you have to keep this together so as we go out and we preach the gospel then the next one is called regeneration and let me give a a definition of that regeneration is god imparting new spiritual life to us god opening our eyes god breathing spiritual life into us so that we can believe the gospel Mm -hmm. so i would even say the gospel call is our part and regeneration is what God did with Lydia, where God Opens. opened her heart. Hmm. Um, I think this is really important because um, I think sometimes we confuse regeneration with, like, conversion. Hmm. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, so John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We often think of the idea of being born again as that's our conversion. But I think what Jesus is actually saying is born again is the idea of regeneration so that you can believe. Mm. So notice that Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Being born again precedes entering into the kingdom. Hmm. So again, I think it happens instantaneously. But I think regeneration is what God did to Lydia. Lydia is hearing the gospel by Paul and God... Uh, causes her to be born again so that she goes, that is what I believe. Yeah. And she enters into the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so anyways, we don't have to... Uh, it's the idea of when does regeneration take place? When yeah. does God make us alive spiritually? And I would say it, it happens the same time you hear the gospel. Yeah. It's not like... So don't hear me say that God can make you spiritually alive and then 10 years goes by yeah. and you're not a Christian. No, yeah. no, 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 no. This I, happens. I think it happens simultaneously almost. Yeah. Same but, same event, but this is the course of events within I that event. I think so. That I think sense. it's just, uh, I, and I've seen it happen where you, you, you could preach the gospel to the same person 10 times in a row. Yeah. And it's like, I don't believe, I don't, I don't believe, believe, I don't. And then some, one time yeah. you say maybe the same thing yeah. and they're like, Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Well, what's the difference here? I think it's that God regenerated them. He made them alive um, so that they could believe. Um, 
We should take a break before the next one. Get some tea. And okay, then we'll I'm not done. Well, oh, yes. you're not done. Okay. No, th- All right. So let me just uh, say why this is really important. Um, I think it's really important that God regenerates us before we believe, because Scripture says that if God didn't do that, none of us would believe. Hmm. Like we're so sinful yeah. that that's why you hear the gospel and it's just on deaf ears. It's like, and I'll give you some examples. Like Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So it's this idea that God must open our, our eyes and hearts hmm. before we're drawn. Uh, Colossians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. So God took something that was dead yeah. and he made it alive. First Corinthians 2 says, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Yeah. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So I think the Bible says we're dead in our sins. We're spiritually dead. The Bible says nobody's righteous. No one seeks for God. No one wakes up one day and goes, you know what? I think I'll be a Christian. Yeah. Like, just that doesn't happen outside of God naturally, yeah. right? Um, the Bible says that the natural person doesn't accept the things of God. We literally have hearts of stone. We're spiritually dead. We are unable to respond unless God awakens us. So regeneration, I think, um, is when the gospel's preached. God, just in His grace and mercy, it's like He says, yeah. "Okay, heart of flesh, heart of flesh." And then you hear the gospel and you go, it's true, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll admit, there are scholars who completely disagree with that. Yeah. They're like, nope, regeneration happens after you believe. It is synonymous with being born again. Yeah. Uh, or sorry, it's synonymous with conversion. Yeah. And I go, okay, I would still think that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. I just think they're wrong. I think the, the Bible really lays this out. Yeah. Going... What's our condition? We're fallen. We're, we have hearts of stone. We're unable to come to God. And then we hear the gospel, and it's like God turns on the light bulb, and then we believe. So yeah. God regenerates our hearts. He, he, he gives us new spiritual life. Even Ezekiel 36, God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Yeah. And it, that's something that God does. It's God's hand it's in not that. It's us, not us like, come on, stone, be flesh. Yeah. Like, it's the idea of God's the one who actually, who does that. Yeah. So that would be regeneration. All right. All right. So moving on. So that's regeneration. The next step is our conversion. So this is um, our response to the gospel call. So notice that it's kind of all happening at the same time. Yeah. The gospel call goes out. God regenerates our hearts. And then the next step is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sin and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Um, And I know that, like, we're still holding this tension, right? Because you go, okay, but it's my willing choice, but God chose me. No, but you are willingly choosing to respond to the gospel, right? Um, And so I I just wrote down a few thoughts. Um, True saving faith includes knowledge, approval, and trust. So I'll unpack this. Knowledge alone is not enough. Just knowing the facts about what Jesus has done, um, who he was, 
that's not enough, right? Just the knowledge of it. So I'll give you some examples. Romans 1.32 says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul's example is like, these people know what God's decrees are. They have a knowledge of who God is, and yet they're saying, I don't really care. Um, Nicodemus is an example. He believed some things about Jesus, and yet you see in John 3... He doesn't become a believer yet. Yeah. I, think, I think later he does. But I think he comes to Jesus and he goes, okay, clearly you're sent by God. Clearly you're a rabbi. And yet he doesn't believe yet, yeah. right? Even look at your neighbor in the world today. Most people, not have everyone, some kind of, have yep. some kind of knowledge that Jesus came to save you from your sins, but they don't believe it. And we would say they're not saved. Yeah. And so even James 2 says demons have pretty good theology. They know about God. That's my paraphrase. You know, you believe that <laughs> demons, uh, they got some good theology. You know, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And demons aren't saved. Yeah. And yet they know knowledge and facts about who God is. So when you hear the gospel call, it's not just knowledge going, okay, yeah, Jesus was a historical person who lived and died and was raised from the dead. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then secondly, knowledge and approval are not enough. It's not enough to just hear knowledge and facts and even agree with them, right? Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily saving faith. Hmm. Um, one example in Acts 26, Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, and he says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner... King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So Paul says, King Agrippa, I know that you believe the prophets. Like you have knowledge of what the prophets said and yeah. you believe it. And King Agrippa's like, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? So just knowledge and approving of that knowledge isn't enough. The last thing is you have to, ha you have to decide to depend on Jesus to save you. That's that trust, right? There's knowledge, there's approval, and then there's this trust. So you hear the gospel about the facts about who Jesus is, uh, what the gospel means. You approve of them. You go, yeah, I believe that that's true. And then you're actually like trusting hmm. in that for your own salvation. Um, I mean, we already read a few of these, but John 1.12, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, John 7, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so I think there's this idea that repentance and trust, that has to happen for your conversion, hmm. right? Uh, and repentance is just heartfelt sorrow over sin, renouncing it, turning from it, and then seeking to walk in obedience to Jesus. Um, I think there's, a, I mean, a few examples of that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says you were grieved into repenting, right? So when you hear the gospel call and you hear about the facts of your sinfulness and what Jesus has done, it's like you're grieved over your sin, but it leads you into this place of trusting in Jesus for this, the solution to it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think repentance and faith happen simultaneously. It's like two sides of the same coin. Like when you hear the gospel, I think faith like trust in jesus and repentance happen at the same time um and then i think like like do, are you talking on initial 
belief, or are you talking throughout a Christian's life? I think I think faith and repentance on initial belief and throughout a Christian's life. Um, so, for example, like um, in Acts twenty, Paul says that he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So it's like seen as the same two two sides of the same hmm. coin. Um, <clears throat> and then I think repentance and faith continues throughout your life. Like your faith becomes clearer and clearer. We're called to just consistently repent, like yeah. turn from sin, turn to Jesus. Yeah. But I'm more saying like in this initial conversion, you becoming a Christian, it's repentance and faith kind of happening at the same time. Yeah. So it's the idea of the gospel call. I hear about the knowledge of who Jesus is. I approve of that message. <laughs> I approve <of> this <laughs> message. <laughs> but then, I, then I'm placing my trust uh, in it. I don't know. Any thoughts about that? That one's a little bit straightforward too. Yeah. I, I think uh, for me, as when I, when I first came back to Christ after walking away, there was a period in my life where I was like, what does it even mean to repent? Maybe I don't have victory over sin because I'm not repenting right. It, it's something that's yeah. coming up yeah. in my mind because we're talking about conversion and we're talking about uh, even later into the Christian life. <laughs> I think something that has helped me to to recognize what repentance is is the way uh the word is actually used in scripture and i know that might sound like well what do you mean by that i'll tell you um (laughs) repentance itself is the act of uh this is my definition the act of turning away from and turning to something else so what i mean is like if you're walking into sin and you recognize that it's sin that you're doing and you're like oh shoot i'm really sorry and you just keep walking in that sin Yep. That's not repentance. That's that's continuing sin. Yeah. Repentance, and in, in even the uh, verses that you quoted here, is the idea that as you're walking through life and you recognize your sin because of your faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, yeah. that as you recognize those things, you would stop and do an about face and turn around and return to Yahweh, yeah. return to God and live in his ordained ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, like repentance, metanoia, that's the Greek word. It, you're right, and it also means to change your mind. Yeah. Which is exactly the same, yeah. it's the same idea. Yeah, so it's, I believe this about my sin and about God, and then repentance is like, oh man, I'm, I'm wrong. I have to got to change my mind and change my direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So then, yeah, <clears throat> your faith is definitely a part of that because totally. you, you have to understand who Yahweh is, to understand that you are sinning. I think that we can understand that we've done wrong without understanding that it was a sin. Totally. If that makes sense. Yep. I agree. Okay, so uh, God elects us. We hear the gospel call. God awakens us spiritually, regenerates us so that we can believe by faith. And then we respond in faith and repentance to the, the gospel call and that would be our conversion. Congrats, you just became a Christian. Woo-hoo. That's our conversion. But here's the question though, and this leads us to the next step. What about the guilt of our sin though? And this would be called justification. Because yeah, okay, so you go Okay, I believe the gospel, I believe it's true, I'm placing my trust in Jesus, but you go, but I'm I'm still guilty of all of this sin. So what happens to that? Like Something has to happen, right? God, God has to respond to our faith and declare our sins forgiven. It's not just like, 
magic. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, and so justification, biblically, is the idea of an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks, and I'm going to say this, I'm just going to read it so I don't butcher it, in which he thinks of our sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. So it's a legal term Mm -hmm. where when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, God looks at you and he says, your sins have now been given to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness has now been given to you. So you go, what about the guilt of my sin? Uh, uh, Martin Luther called this the great exchange. It's like G- God takes our sin, and he, he views it as uh, being put on Jesus on the cross, mm-hmm. and then Jesus' perfect righteous holiness is then credited to you. Um, I'm going to use the whiteboard for the first Woo! time. Woo! Whiteboard power. <laughs> you're gonna edit that out <laughs> i'll make sure to say that again andrew you're gonna edit that out that way you can find this timestamp. so, so <laughs> oh, oh my gosh this is great so justification <laughs> you're doing great i'm doing great man is uh i'm reading the greek word for you da k u um and it just it literally means to declare someone righteous uh, that's what it means to justify. If I'm going to justify something or someone, I'm declaring it righteous. I'm declaring it. So uh, it's not justifying the. Well, I guess maybe it is because when I think of the word justify, oh, I'm I trying often to justify think of, like, my position. I did this. Well, I, I did it because of this and because of this yeah. and because of that. It, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, kind of. You're trying to declare something. You're trying to declare yourself righteous. You're trying to justify yourself. Yeah. Hmm. So um, a few examples. Um, <coughs> excuse me from scripture. Uh, Romans 8, we've already talked about this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who, whom he called, he also justified. And it's a past tense. Like if, if you believe, you have been justified. Hmm. You're not waiting to be justified. You are justified, right? Um, Romans three twenty six and 28, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 5 says we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Roman, or Galatians 2 says we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, I mean, Scripture is really clear. You are not declared righteous by how good you can be. Yeah. Now, there are some Christians who, 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 who believe that you are justified by the works that you do. Yeah. They'll say, they'll kind of, um, they'll go, yeah, there's an, there's an initial justification uh, where Jesus kind of declares you justified from your past sin. But the idea of like Christ's righteousness being credited to you, I know some believers who go, no, you have to be righteous on your own. Which biblically, there's just no case for that. I mean, over and over and over and over again, the apostles are like, no, you're not justified by what you do. It That kind of viewpoint would remind me a lot of what the Israelites did with the law itself. Yes, totally. Um, so Paul goes in and, and talks about how Abraham was justified by faith, not yeah, like he didn't even have the law, right? He was justified by faith, 
Uh, and so then when the law came in, I think that we often look at those 613 laws as yeah. like, this is how you live righteously. This is how you are made perfect. Um, which is funny for us as Christians to do because those 613 aren't even all the laws of that society. It was just the sure. laws that are put into the into the Torah. Yeah. Um, and so what's f- what is important about those things is that God gave them as statutes to live by, but they aren't what made you righteous. Yeah. It was your covenant with Yahweh totally. that made you righteous, yeah. if that makes sense. It was still by faith. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really important. We are justified as God responds to our faith, right? We, the, the conversion, uh, we respond to the gospel call by placing our trust in Jesus. And it's like God then responds to our faith by going, you are now justified. And this is really important. Justification, what does it do? It means that you have no penalty to pay for your sin, past, present, or future. Yeah. That's really important because lots of Christians live as like, well, yeah, my past has been justified, hmm. but not my present and not my future. Uh, no. Do they have any scripture that they try to use for that? Well, I, I think I think they look at scripture, which is encouraging us to live holy lives. And passages probably and, like in James where faith without works yeah, is dead. But they say like, look at the New Testament always commands us to live holy lives. Well, yeah, totally it does. But you are not justified by your attempt at holiness. Like we're called to, because Jesus has justified, like live this way now. But like Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't say like, except if you sin in the future, then you're condemned. It's like, nope, there is no condemnation. Past, mm-hmm. present, future. Um, Romans eight thirty three says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that, that died more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of, the, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if God merely said, okay, I'll declare you to be forgiven for your sins in the past, then it wouldn't fix our problem. Mm. Like we would still, it would only, if God did that, then what Jesus would do would make us morally neutral. If Jesus is like, okay, I'll die for all your past sins. Yeah. Well, then it's like, I'm going to clean you up and now you're neutral now try, right? And hmm. we would instantly mess it up. Like, yeah. there's no way that we could, even, even that wouldn't be good enough. Like, um, we have to actually go from moral neutrality to be, to have positive righteousness before God. God doesn't view you as morally neutral now because of Jesus. He views you as righteous, right? Um, so it, it means justification is, is mind-blowing, because it means that your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for, but also that God looks at you presently as being righteous in his sight. He doesn't look at, like, look at all that gross sin in your life. Yeah. When he looks at you, he actually sees the righteousness of Jesus. Um, a few things, like uh, Isaiah 61 says, I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he's covered me with the robe of righteousness. So it's something that's not within us. God covers us in righteousness. Um, Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. Um, And and then on and on. I'm going to skip that part for sake of time. So 
uh, let me just summarize, and then maybe we'll ask, like, well, how does this work? Okay, so you confess faith in Jesus. God takes your sin. He views it as being put on Jesus. Yep. And then he views the righteousness and perfection of Jesus being put on you, credited to your account. So that way you are declared legally you are righteous, right? There's, and that's past, present, and future. Mm. Um, I don't know, thoughts? Because my first thought is like, um, won't people just take advantage of that? Like yeah. if, this, if all my sin is paid for. It, it's interesting how that, that's not actually my first thought. Maybe it is in my heart. I, I don't know. From what I'm aware, it's not my first thought. Yeah. Um, I think for me... It's Maybe it shows something about myself. <laughs> my I, thirst, my first thought is like... Ooh. It must be something because Paul talks about that too, right? Oh, that's what I was going to bring up in Romans um, 6. So I, I think that it is something that the human heart will go towards totally. um, because, well, what shall we say then? That we shall continue to sin, that grace may abound? By no means, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I recognize that that's a hard position. I think for me, what it brings up is like, man, if all of my sin is paid for and I'm righteous, why do I keep sinning? Yeah, totally. Why why do I keep doing yeah. that? If I am actually set free, if those chains are broken, <coughs> why do I keep choosing this? Yeah. If, right? That's that's a good point. So I think there's this tension. Again, we talk about tensions in Scripture where Paul says that you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And yet, Paul also says that until the day you die, you will have a sin nature. And you are, say that? you're going to battle against the world and the flesh. Anytime the flesh is brought up, yeah. Um, uh, now you put me on the spot because he talks about putting your flesh to death. Put therefore. The, the, is that Romans 7? Or anyways, Romans 7 is a great example where yeah. Paul's going, why do I keep doing the things yes. I don't want to do? Yep. Oh, wretched man that I am, right? Who will save me from this body of death? So there's this tension where God looks at you as perfectly righteous. You are legally justified. And yet we're going to get to being glorified. That's the last stage where we don't have a sin nature anymore. But because we have a sin nature, it's like this. And you've probably felt this listening or you it's like an internal battle that is going on. It's like you're at war with yourself. Yeah. And I have felt that, man, when I'm like, yeah. oh, stupid idiot. Why am I doing this? Just like Paul says, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that's the, that's the all the calls in the New Testament to live righteous lives. Basically what they're saying is put your flesh to death. Yeah. Like stop going back to it. Like, discipline yourself to walk with the spirit don't do things that gratify your flesh like yeah that's that that ongoing battle um so i'll so how does this work when we talk about like it sounds so amazing that my sin sinness nope my sin is given to jesus and jesus righteousness is given to me um theologians call this the imputation and basically, if you think about it, so um, Adam sinned, and uh, that was in his guilt was imputed to us, right? We're guilty. The we, guilt of sin, not yeah, the guilt. the guilt of sin. We weren't there. I didn't eat from the tree. Yeah, but it's like because of Adam, sin was then imputed to all of mankind, and then um, Christ comes and he suffers, 
and uh, our sin then is imputed to him, like when we believe, right? It's like he takes our sin, it's put on Jesus on the cross, and then uh, Christ's righteousness when we believe is then given to us. So it's like, you see, it's like the whole story of Scripture is Adam sinned, and now we're guilty because of that. Like, yeah. uh, and then Christ suffered, and he uh, took his sin. Or sin. He took our sin, there you not go. his sin. There you go. <laughs> and then when we believe in Jesus, Christ then gives us his, his righteousness. Um, and so it, we have to clarify, it's, it's entirely by God's grace. Mm-hmm. It's not based on God didn't look at you or me and go, they're pretty good. I'm going to justify them because they're, they're almost there. Yeah. It's solely because of God's grace. And if you knew either of us, you would know that that yeah, cannot be do, true. Do, do, the people do know us. They're like, those two idiots? Yeah, that cannot <laughs> be true. But it is this amazing act, and it deals with the penalty of sin. Like God, I think, if he's to be just, he has to deal with the penalty of sin. Yeah. Um, and so it wouldn't be enough for Jesus, for God to go, okay, you know what? Whatever. You're off the hook. No, like the wages of sin is death. Uh, the, the penalty for sin had to be paid. And that's what Jesus did, right? And then uh, we are justified. God declares us, you know, when the judge hits the hammer, not guilty. Yeah. God can do that because when we place our trust in Jesus, our sin is given to him, and Jesus' righteousness is given to us, and then God looks at us and he says, righteous. Yeah. So it's an amazing, like, God's justification of us is, I don't know, mind-numbing to think about. Yeah. I don't know, thoughts before we move on? I think, because uh, often I've I've asked the question to myself, or have in the past, where it was like, why... How, what, I, like, <laughs> yeah. I, it just, it seems so big. Um, it does. I think for more details, I would go back and listen to the episode where we talked about the atoning work of Christ. Yeah, totally. Because um, yeah. what I think is important to recognize is that there is, this is not just a random happenstance that God is doing this. Like no. you said, there's legal requirements. And so we would look at our laws in Canada and be like, there's nothing in here that says Jesus has to die for me for these mm-hmm. things. Um, but it's not like that. This is on a way grander scale. So I'll try and sum it up relatively quick. Sure. If you want more detail, I would definitely suggest going to look at that. So God created the world. <clears throat> he created man. Mankind is in his image. Yeah. God dwells with his people in the garden, right? Uh, and we see that because we see verses like even after Adam and Eve had sinned, before he brought the curse from, like that sin brought on creation yeah before he brings that into fruition he is walking in the garden yeah and those are those are verbs that's not just like a uh how would you put it like a i can't think of the word i hope you know what i mean it's not like a metaphor yeah, a, yeah he is walking in the garden with him he is dwelling with his people sure that's how it's portrayed in in eden adam sinned the curse of sin happens and god is then separated from his people his mm-hmm. people are unable to enter into uh lasting pr- uh relationship with God that is at all healthy. So Adam sinned, all sinned because of Adam. Paul talks about this. Uh, Jesus died for the (coughs) sins. But what has happened is uh, God throughout Scripture has been concerned with dwelling with his people. So even if you look at the temple, Mm -hmm. God 
got his people to build a dwelling place amongst them where he could dwell. And then you look at the atonement, day of atonement, so Leviticus chapter 16, if you're looking for that. Uh, And that was a ceremony that they were commanded to do Hmm. that purifies God's dwelling place among them so that God could continue to dwell with them, so that the priests could do the work of mediating between God and his people and God and creation. Uh, And so what Jesus has done, and you'll see the language of this in the New Testament, we are in the New Testament considered to be the temple of Yahweh. The church is considered to be the temple of Yahweh. Um, And so what happens is, is when Jesus has died for our sins, that is considered our atonement, the atonement that covers us, that cleanses us so that God can then dwell in us Mm -hmm. through his Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And then we act as priests throughout creation. (coughs) So that's what's happening here. That's what he's... Like, these are just different aspects of what is happening there, where we are then considered righteous where God can dwell with us, because God cannot dwell Mm -hmm. where there is sin, right? That's why they needed the Day of Atonement, even, is because there were sins that they didn't even know that they had committed that they had to atone for. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, so then the next step is called adoption. So God legally justifies us. He declares us righteous. And adoption means God makes us members of his family. We are adopted into his family. So John 1.12 says, Whoever believes in Jesus, he gives the right to become children of God. Romans 8.14-17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received... Excuse me. <laughs> oh, man. <coughs> but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father... The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians 3 says, But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So adoption uh, is the idea that, okay, so not only does God, like justification deals with here's your legal standing before God, And adoption is, now here's your relationship with God the Father. Like, it's not just, he's the judge, now get out of here. It's like, no, he's actually your father now. Um, He calls you his his children. You're adopted into his family. Um, And I think it's important because Ephesians 2 gives us the contrast before that. We're told that before God saved you, you're actually a child of wrath. You're a son of disobedience is what scripture says. Mm. And then, you know, God calls you. You hear the gospel. God regenerates you. You respond. He justifies you. Now, now you're, you are part of his you're family. You're a part of his family now. He has adopted you. And uh, being adopted into God's family, again, these things happen like, like yep. instantly, right? Yep. Um, and it means that you can speak and relate to God as your father, it means that you're led by the Holy Spirit. It means that God disciplines you as his children, yeah. right? You're a part of his family now. So it's interesting. I, I remember um, hearing this, and the first time I heard it, I was like, is that right? God's our father, and Jesus is our older brother. Yeah. And I remember it's being like, huh? But I'm like, you're right. Jesus is God's son, yeah. and we are now welcomed in. Not, we're not on the same level as Jesus. Yeah. But we are now sons and daughters of God. And Paul says, like, you're actually co-heirs with Jesus. Yeah. Like, he's your older brother. Like, he's saved you. Yeah. And now you are welcomed into God's family. So, I mean, 
it's, a, it's an amazing aspect. It's not as if God justifies us and now he's some cold, distant God. It's like, nope. Uh, Abba actually means in Greek, daddy. Like, yeah. Which makes, I know it makes some guys. Just use like, Abba Father. Don't, don't say <laughs> daddy God or whatever. But it's, it's more than just this formal yes father. It's like dad. God is our dad. Like he, yeah. that kind of close relationship now. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think know. I think that's incredible to me. I'll keep it concise. Yeah, God is completely other. He is totally. completely holy. He is not like us. We are undeserving of this. He is, in the <coughs> sense of our sin, how it separates us from God. He is, in some senses, because of that, far off. He's not, but hopefully, I'm yep. trying to paint a picture here. He, he is far off, and because of what Christ has done through faith, we have access to then have. The ability to sit in community with this holy God. Yeah, totally. In a closeness that is, like, even our earthly fathers don't, like, they pale in comparison. Yeah, totally. For how we can have relationship with yeah. our heavenly father. And that's amazing to me. Yeah. It, yeah, that blows me away. Okay, so election happens before you were even born. Yep. And then gospel call, regeration, conversion, justification, and adoption. adoption happen boom almost simul- simultaneously that's you becoming a christian so that's really important because it's not as if like okay i became a christian but i'm not quite adopted into god's family yet it's like nope those five things happen yep. instantly so then we get to sanctification and sanctification takes place for the rest of your life um and it means it's a progressive work of god and man it's where we partner with God that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. So um, justification is like this legal once and for all, boom, you're declared righteous. And sanctification is this lifeline process where you literally become more and more like Jesus in mm-hmm. your actual everyday life, Yeah, right? And it's it's a work that, the Holy Spirit does, and it's a work that we do together. Yeah. So on one hand, no one in this life can say, I am completely free from sin. But also no one who is a follower of Jesus should ever say, this sin has defeated me, I give up, it's just the way I am. Yeah. There's this tension, right? We're, we're never going to be fully sanctified, and yet we don't just say, I can't help it. I give up. I can't do this. Yeah. So I've heard I've heard some scholars say that it, and, and I'm just curious for your thoughts on this. Uh, maybe have a bit of a conversation about it. I've heard some scholars say that if we truly believe that we have been broken, that those <coughs> chains have been broken, that we are free from sin, that we are now sons of God, and we truly believe in the power of Jesus to save, then why wouldn't we be able to live sinless lives? Mm-hmm. Um, the way I would look at it, and I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts. I the way I would look at it is, yeah, good point. Why <laughs> why wouldn't we be able to? Um, but then I I look at myself and I look at everyone else throughout history, and I I truly do have to question. Like, I'm pretty sure it's in James. It talks about if he who says he is without sin uh, is lying. That's First John. First John. Yeah, chapter one. It says, yeah, if if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and yeah. God's not in you. And th- and yet, then it says, if you confess and repent your sin and repent of your sins, God is faithful and just, and He'll cleanse you. Yeah. So I I look at verses <coughs> like that. I look at fellow Christians who have been yep. Christians way longer than me, 
Yeah. And and like you said uh, on your sermon this or in your sermon this Sunday, uh, you talked to a man who had been following Jesus for sixty years, and what was the one thing that he one thing that he had learned, uh, and it was how sinful he is. Yeah. So I don't know why. Why is that something that we yeah. can't do? Because I I hear what those scholars are saying. Yeah, the power of Jesus to save is yep. amazing. Yep. Like, in theory, we should be able to live sinless lives because of it. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. One is because we, till the day we die, we will always have a sinful flesh. And that just wages war against us. Um it's it's like you're at war with yourself, but I will say this: um, as the longer that you follow Jesus, sin should progressively lose its hold on you. So mm-hmm. I I will say, the longer you follow Jesus, you should sin less. You will not be sinless. No, you will sin. And less. I want to be really careful because I I can say yeah that I look back at my life. And the things that I fell into sin, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they don't ha- have a hold on me anymore. But I'm, I am nowhere near perfect. Yeah. So I think there's this, we can fall into two opposite errors where we're like, you can be sinless. And if you try really, really hard, you will never sin. Yeah. Which I think is an error. Or the flip side where you go, I'm hopeless and I might as well give up because I can't stop sinning. I think there's actually this middle ground where you go, you will continue to sin and fall, and yet over time, as sanctification happens, you should be able to sin less. Um, So I'll give you a few passages. Um, There seems to be this, when salvation happens, there seems to be this kind of uh, definite moral change that occurs. Yep. Um, Titus 3 says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passion and pleasure. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Um, 1 John 3 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning. I don't think that means you never sin, but I think it's you're not making a practice of it. I'm going to wake up and sin every day. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So there seems to be this initial moral change that happens. I'll give an example. I remember there was a a young lady in our church that became a believer, and she was living with her boyfriend and uh, sleeping together and all that kind of jazz. And by just herself, she became a believer, and then the next day she talked to someone who had led her to faith, and she said, I can't have sex with my boyfriend anymore hmm. because there was this, the spirit of God now lives in you yeah. and there was this change that happened. Now that doesn't mean that she's going to be sinless for the rest of her life, yeah. but there was that initial change. Um, and then I think that the Bible teaches us that over time, sin should lose its hold on us. The more that we walk with Jesus and the more that he changes us. Hmm. Um, Romans 6 Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your moral body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, we all with unfailed face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
for this comes from the Spirit who is the Lord. So again, I don't think sanctification will ever be complete in our lifetime. We'll never arrive and say, you know, I'm done. But I, I think, and this might be, I don't know, discouraging to some people, but I think you should be able to look at your life and say, okay, from this year, so from this time, wait, what am I trying to say? From now, if I look back a year ago, I should be able to say, I am more like Jesus now than I was a year ago. Hmm. However, right, from degree, one degree, degree of glory. Yeah. But I should be able to go, you know what? In the past year, I've become way more patient. I think, I, I think I've grown in my patience. I'm not as angry as I used to be with my kids or whatever it yeah. is, right? Or I don't sin as much as I used to in that way. We should be able to see progressive yeah. sanctification, yeah. right? I'm going to draw it because, um, oh boy, this might help. Um, goodbye, Adam, Christ, righteousness. Um, if you wanted to view it like this, I'm going to try and... I don't want to view it like that. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> uh, hopefully you can see it on the camera. But here's where we are slaves to sin. Okay? And this would be uh, growing in holiness. If you can't read it, just pretend. Um, so I would say down here, human beings, here we are. This is your life. Uh, before you become uh, a follower of Jesus, you, you might do good things and do bad things, but you're still in this category of you're a slave to sin. Yeah. The good and the bad that you do is inconsequential because you don't follow Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's this moment uh, where you have your conversion. And that takes you, Paul says, from being a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness, Right. So you, you are now, you know, if you want to call this justification, you know, you're now declared righteous. So you're not operating as a slave to sin anymore. Yeah. And yet, I would say, number two, the Christian life, this whole box is called growing in holiness. And I, I would say it's, it's, it's like that. It's got setbacks. You sin. Yeah. Uh, but you're, you should be Growing in holiness, if that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> and then number three, um, you die. And then you now have achieved perfect holiness um, when you die. Hmm. You're no longer in this struggle to grow in holiness. The day you die, or I should say, or, you know, Jesus returns, then the battle is done with your flesh. You're not striving to grow in holiness. You are now perfectly holy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now when you say perfectly holy, do you mean a human standard of holiness? Uh, not as in like like what the world would consider good. What I mean is like, like we've talked about carrying the attributes of God. We'll still be image bearers of God in yep. heaven. So is it a human holiness? Because holiness, like when I think of holiness, a perfect holiness, I think of God. But we don't become gods nope. or God. Nope. So I would say perfect holiness would be free from the presence and power of sin. Because right now we are freed from the penalty of sin. And throughout life we should be growing to be freed from the power of sin. Hmm. But when Jesus returns or we die, we're actually freed from the presence of sin 
and all power of sin. So I think holiness would mean that you no longer have a sinful nature and you no longer sin ever. Mm. So you're not, yeah, that's a good point. You're not, we don't become gods, but we just become perfected, sinless, sinless human beings. Mm. Um, so throughout this life, I mean, that's why sanctification can be really frustrating <laughs> if we're mm. honest, because it's like, whoa, man, I feel like I'm taking two steps forward and one step back. Okay, well, at least you're moving forward, right? Yeah. Like, so again, we don't excuse our sin. We don't. We don't just say, "Well, I guess I can't change." Nope. We should be striving. That's where all the the New Testament stuff about striving and work out yeah. your salvation. It's this idea of like we're growing. Run the race that has been put totally you. right, and it can be very frustrating because it feels like a battle. It totally does. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so, God has His role in our sanctification, right? We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Um, Philippians 2 says, it's God who works in you. Um, But then we play a role in it too, right? It's not just we sit back and go, okay, sanctify me, Jesus. We, our role is that we strive, right? It's it's what you just said. We run the race. We're going to, we're going to, you know, Paul, Paul says, I beat my body into submission, like we, which is like a weird, like Does he pluck an eyebrow. Yeah, or like something oh, every stop time sinning. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then we're partnering with the Spirit, who then exposes sin, and he he uh, does his work yeah. in us. Yeah, and I it is, um, I without saying that it is on you because Jesus helps us, the Holy Spirit helps us with this. Yeah, uh, Paul, or, sorry, not Paul, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter twelve. Uh, talking about the great cloud of witnesses and stuff. And he says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right uh, hand and throne of God. (coughs) Yeah. Right? So we're running the race. If you're encumbered with sin, it's not going to be easy to do. Yeah, totally. Right? And yeah, I, I think running a race is a good analogy for that. Yeah. All right, so sanctification. We got two more. Uh, this is almost, we're coming up on two hours. That's, Ooh, that's cool. You though, guessed right? three. I guessed three, and we are just flying. Okay, so this is perseverance, meaning remaining a Christian. Um, so we're gonna get into this because this is again one of those that's like some people debated do not believe this. Um, so I would say. This is the definition of perseverance of the saints. That's what it's often called. All those who are truly Christians will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Only those who persevere until the end have been truly saved. So let me give you a... Excuse me, that's rude. You need some Tums or something? Let me give you a, a bunch of verses... And then we'll unpack the debate around it. So I think I am someone that holds to this. I believe that those who are truly Christians, they will make it to the end. And I think it actually reflects more on God's desire that his elect make it to the end rather than us. I think this doctrine is actually more about God than about us. I think it's about God's faithfulness to to help us persevere to the end. So John 6, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me, 
but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and, I, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, Paul says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which we'll get to next. That's the last stage. Yep. But Paul seems to say, those whom God calls, justifies, he glorified them. Yep. Uh, Philippians 1 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Ephesians 1 talks about you being sealed this guarantee, when you believe in Jesus, you're given a seal, the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of your future inheritance. So I think, I think Scripture repeatedly talks about eternal security, the idea that if you have been called, regenerated, if you've responded in faith, that you will not lose your salvation. Hmm. Now, I don't know, thoughts to that? Like, or... <laughs> yeah, I now, yeah. I think that this is de- like you said this is definitely one that is debated among Christians uh and especially among scholars. I think I can see the position that some scholars would hold around uh the fact that you could lose your salvation even just like the over and over again calls to like hey live righteous mm-hmm. lives don't mm-hmm. fall back. Yep. Um so there does seem to be something about like that we can stumble and fall. Yeah. I th- I think for me, uh, I want to do the text justice when it comes to stuff like this. I don't want to bring my philosophy onto these things. Totally. Um, because I am a flawed human, yeah. and God is not a flawed human, so He knows how these things work better yeah. than I do. Uh, so I, yeah. So I'll I'll say a few things. Yeah. Um, often this is quoted as, unfortunately, oh, once saved, always saved. Um, and it's it's when every anytime I hear someone say it like that, I prefer to call it perseverance of the saints, because once saved, always saved presents this idea of well, just say a prayer and then live however you want because you can't yeah. lose your salvation. But I would say someone who says that and lives like that, well, I said a prayer, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, you've actually proven that you don't understand the gospel, yeah. I think. Yep. And I, I would say that you've proven that you haven't actually surrendered to Jesus. If you're like, sure, I'll say a prayer and I can live however I want, well, then yeah. that's not surrender. So even if you don't say that, though, I think that we can live that out with our actions where we would believe or say we believe, yeah. uh, but continue to live sinfully without yep. remorse for sin, right? Like. So, uh, yeah, I th- yeah, I think you're right. And then Scripture, it, I think it repeatedly emphasizes those who are truly converted, they will persevere to the end, and they, there's certainty that you will have eternal life with God. But then you're right. There's passages that say you need to continue in the faith. So I'll read some. John 8, 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. So there seems to be an if there. Oh, what? Yeah. Uh, Matthew 10, the, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And you go, okay, well, so is it based on my endurance then? Like Colossians 1, it says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So there's, 
there seems to be these passages where it's like, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I'm not going to lose any of them, but you got to endure to the end. Yeah. So uh, my, my understanding, and again, people might disagree. My understanding is that those who continue um, show that they are genuine believers. Those who don't continue show that maybe they didn't have genuine faith in the first place. Hmm. Um, so I think actually continuing in the faith is a sign that you are actually saved, that you've believed the gospel, that you've placed your faith in Jesus, that you've repented. Um, there's actually lots of scripture where it says people who say they believe but don't actually believe. Or even people who show maybe external signs of conversion but they actually haven't been converted. Hmm. So, for, so for instance, 1 John 2, 9, uh, John is speaking about people in the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So John's saying there's people who left the church, but by them leaving, you're proving that you actually weren't from us. You weren't with us. Yeah. Um, Galatians 2 says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus he calls them false brothers people who who appeared to be brothers but yeah. they weren't really um second corinthians 11 says it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds um and then Paul talks about being in danger from false brothers, people who say that they're Christians, but they're not actually Christians. Um, Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say, didn't we prophesy, cast out demons, do mighty works? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. You go, well, wait a second. It's a terrifying statement. <laughs> well, yeah, and to think about people who prophesy and do miracles and cast out demons— so they're showing signs of yeah. real conversion, and yet Jesus says, I actually don't even know you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's examples of people who, and those people seem to think that they're saved, which is terrifying. Yeah. So for me, I go, someone who perseveres to the end shows that they were actually truly converted, and God kept them till the end. Those who I... Who I and I know lots. I mean, I look at my days as a youth pastor, and there were teens. We had probably a hundred kids in our youth group, and all of them were like, "Yeah, Jesus rules." I look at them now on Facebook. Maybe five out of the hundred are still persevering in the faith, and so I go, "Did all ninety-five of them lose their salvation, or did th were they just there for the hype?" Yeah, and I go, "I think it might just be that they were there for the hype." Yeah, it's uh, um. If like if I can be candid, this is something that I've wrestled with sure. a lot. Yeah, because uh, if you know my testimony, I grew up in a Christian home, going to church every Sunday, professing Jesus as my Lord and Savior, uh, but ended up falling away like drastic, pretty drastically. Yeah. Um, and I God through His grace called me back. Uh, and if you want details, I'm, my testimony's been shared lots, but I can you can come talk to me. Sure. Um, for the sake of time, I won't go into it. But I, I remember I was telling my testimony to one of my wife's mentors, and she asked me about the moment when, I f when God called me back. She was like, is that the moment that you first understood the gospel? And I'd never been asked that before, and it hit me really hard of like, sure. man, that's... 
That is a good question because that is the point in my life that I would argue I saw the most change, saw the biggest heart posture shift, right? Yeah. Repentance started to happen. Um, and so, yeah, it was a question. That, it's a question that I still wrestle with. Yeah. Um, and I've heard it said by someone else, uh, they don't know exactly when it happened, but all they know is that they were one way and mm. they are a different way now. Mm. And the thing that's different is that they believe in Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I think this is something that is okay to wrestle with. And I think that yep. ultimately, if you are a follower of Jesus, and this this can be a, a bit of a heart check for yourself too on these postures. If you've heard the gospel and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, you believe that he is who he says he is, you believe that what he says is true, <coughs> Yeah. but you see absolutely no evidence in your life, mm. it might be a heart check to, to go and say, okay, well, am I actually running this race yep. in a manner that I've been called? Yep. Uh, in Philippians, Paul talks about this, right? Yep. To, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Yep. And I, I think that that means that if you truly believe that there is a questioning in your life that should happen of like, am I honoring God in yep. this? And we won't do that perfectly, but Paul covers it in Romans. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Yeah, right? totally. And so, yeah, if you are a Christian struggling with sin, you're in the same boat as all Christians. Yeah, I think too, for me, it's just an assurance of salvation. Like, I know people that they they think that they can lose their salvation and then they have no assurance. And yeah. I still say, oh no, what if I did something wrong and now I've lost it? And that's how I grew up. I'm like, I must have, I must have re-asked Jesus into my heart yeah, 400 times. Same. But I think this doctrine, the reason I, th- I believe in it is because I mean, are we going to take Jesus at his word where he says, okay, I know my sheep and I'm not going to lose any of them. Uh, And what the Father has given me, I will not lose any of it. Now, I want to read Hebrews 6 because this is often a passage that actually just on Sunday, someone, uh, and I'm not exaggerating, this actually happened. Someone on Sunday was like, can you lose your salvation? What about Hebrews 6? Mm -hmm. So I want to read it and explain it a little bit. Hebrews 6 verse 4 to 8 says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those to those for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Hmm. On surface level, this sounds like someone who's a Christian and then falls away. Yeah. But as you kind of unpack it, I actually don't think that this is describing someone who is genuinely converted. One, they say, is it? It is possible to be enlightened, right? Verse 4, the case of those who've been enlightened. I think that can just mean people who know facts and agree about who Jesus is. I don't, I don't think it necessarily means yeah. salvation. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, I think that could just be the benefits of being involved in a church. You, you receive, you're tasting the, the gifts of being. I've had that people who come in and, they're not believers and they go, there's something different here. There's like this energy that's just so great. And I'm like, 
you're tasting the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You don't believe yet. And then it says, who, um, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And the word, some of your translations may say they're partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Greek is metachos, which means that you're an associate or a companion to the Holy Spirit. So I think it can mean, again, people disagree, but I think it can mean that you maybe are close to the Holy Spirit. You're near Him, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're indwelt with Him. Yeah. Um, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Well, yeah, you hear the Word of God proclaimed in the church. You are going to yeah. taste some of the goodness of it. Yeah. And then I think when it says that they've fallen away, I think it just means that someone who, even though they were so close, they tasted it, they were companion, they were so close, and then they leave. It's, I don't think it's that you've but, actually f- truly believed. And then I think the, the analogy that he gives in verses 7 and 8 is really telling because he says, when rain lands on a field and it produces a crop useful, they receive a blessing from God. But if rain lands on a field and all it does is bear thorns and thistles, it's worthless. Yeah. And I think he's describing two types of people, Yeah. right? So for me, Hebrews 6 doesn't necessarily describe someone who, I'm a Christian. No, I'm not. I'm a Christian. No, I'm not. I think it's someone who is sitting in our church pews, is, t- is receiving all these benefits of being near to, near to the Holy Spirit, near to Christians, and yet... Then they fall away. They leave because they go, okay, this is not for me. And their life might even start to look a little different because they're doing it, right? I mean, we look at, we tell our, I've been a child before. My parents would always warn me about standing around bad influences. Totally. Or talking to me and being like, Corland, you've hung out with this type of people again. I can tell because of how you're acting. (coughs) Totally. So, of course, someone who hangs out with Christians every week is going to start acting different. Totally. But that doesn't mean that they are saved. Yeah. I think the other... The other thing that's good to remember when it comes to the atoning sacrifice of Christ, uh, if you look back at Leviticus 16, this is something that had to happen once a year. It was a statute once a year, and it was for the sins of all the nation, Um, which is interesting when you think of it, because there's already tons of laws about sacrifices for sin and stuff, so why are they doing this all over again to do that? Yeah, totally. Um, But that... Take that into mind, and then you think of Christ, who is the ultimate and perfect atoning sacrifice. So that that doesn't have to be done every single year to cleanse you from all of your sin. Um, Just think of how human the Israelites were. Do you think that they actually, every single one of them, absolutely perfectly walked through the sacrificial system? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of all the missed things or the things that they didn't recognize as sin, because uh, we know that can happen in our human humanness as well. Totally. They need, we need a sacrifice that can ultimately pay that without a worry of those things coming back. Totally. Uh, and so with Christ doing that, I think, sets us free from those things, and it's free for eternity. So like you said, if you taste yeah. and choose not to, then that's... And for me, it's hard to wrap my mind around the idea that God would choose someone, elect them, they would hear the gospel call, God would breathe spiritual life into them, and then let they them would respond again. with conversion, faith, and repentance. God would declare them, you are justified, you are legally righteous, you have you're now eternal adopt, life, you're adopted into my family, and then, but you can lose all that. You have eternal life, but you can die again. Sorry. Yeah, so Oops. I just don't, I don't think logically it doesn't make sense, but even biblically, I don't think there's a strong case 
that you can just live your life always in fear of, okay, well, now I'm unadopted from God's family. Now I'm unjustified. I'm yeah. declared uh, legally uh, dead in my sin again. God is going to now yeah. remo- remove my heart of flesh that he's given me and give me a heart of stone. Like, I just don't see God doing you know, that. And again, I think this reflects on God's goodness. Those whom he draws to himself, he'll keep till the end. Now, there's all sorts of like, okay, but what about this person? And what about my family member? And yeah. I get that. Yeah. I have an uncle that yeah. has renounced Christ. And I go, yeah. I wrestle with that. Well, was he ever a Christian? I yeah, I don't know. We hear all in the media even we see all the deconstruction totally. deconstructing stories. Well, did they ever truly believe? Maybe, I don't know. And I heard one pastor who he he believes in the perseverance of the saints, but he said, you know, there's all this debate about can you lose your salvation or did they ever really believe? He's like, can we just agree that they're lost and they need Jesus? Yep. I said, yes, okay, amen. Let's set the debate aside. Your friend that professed faith in Jesus who now walked away. Did they lose their salvation? Did they ever believe? Who cares? Tell them about Jesus. Right? Tell them about Jesus. So I think that's... that. I don't know. This makes me think of a worldly example. And uh, you can cut it out if it doesn't work. But you know how grocery stores used to do the thing where they'd like give you tastes of their products that they're selling? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can you imagine how pointless that would be (laughs) if you never bought that product? The idea is that you taste it, you see that it's good, and you buy the product. You go all in. Yeah. You choose that product over the other ones, right? Totally. So they're not going to offer you the worst thing on their shelves. That's true. Right? That's and so I true. think, at, and again, analogies always So salvation is kind of like Costco yeah. samples. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's the idea of that God is allowing people to truly taste and see that he is good through his people, mm-hmm. through the works that he does, through the body of Christ, and they have a choice yep. then to respond and go all in. Totally. Or to say, nah. Yeah. But yet, guess what? I'm one of those people that always goes to Costco, and I'll better believe it I'd take the free samples because yeah. they're good, <laughs> right? But I don't always buy stuff from Costco. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. analogies always fall apart, but that's, I think, the idea behind that passage that you just read is yep. that people are going and tasting over and over again they're affected by it truly affected by it but that doesn't mean that they are eternally affected sure. by it yep all right last one and we're going to just do this real quick because it's been a long long video if you've made it to the end congrats uh glorification is the last step in the application of our redemption and this will happen when christ returns and he raises from the dead the bodies of all believers from all time who have died reunites them with their souls and changes the body of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. I know that was a mouthful. But essentially glorification means that you will have, like eternity is a physical existence. It's not just your soul floating around. Mm-hmm. You, will be, you will have a physical resurrection body uh, in a new heaven and a new earth, right? Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but read 1 Corinthians 15. That's the main passage about uh, this truth. But even Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then Philippians 3 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So glorification is this final step where we receive perfect, whole resurrection bodies and then we spend eternity with Jesus. Mm. And there is a, there's an element of mystery. I've had people ask me like, what is our bodies going to look like? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, what age will we be? Because if I die as a baby, do I have a six-month-old resurrection body forever? I'm like, I don't know. I, 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 I don't admit it would look hilarious no, seeing <laughs> little babies <laughs> run yeah. around. Um, all we know is that it'll be imperishable. First Corinthians 15 says that. Yeah. You won't grow old. You will have no sickness, no disease. Um, there will be no sign of aging, First Corinthians 15. T- and that will be like Jesus. We won't be Jesus, but we'll be like him. Uh, and then actually the whole creation will be... Renewed. renewed as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, and right now, Romans 8 says creation is kind of groaning. It's dying, right, because of sin. And, uh, man, it's just it's fun to dream what that's going to be like. Like, what will that be like? You, look at how beautiful creation is now. Yeah. And that's creation affected by sin. Yeah. And so the end of glorification is God then, uh, he gives us perfect resurrection bodies. He renews all of creation, and then we spend eternity with him yeah i i think uh this gets into eschatology a little bit i think one of the things that helps me with this because some of us might be like wait uh heaven we have physical bodies wait god's renewing creation uh something that has helped me to understand this (coughs) is uh yeah there's lots of language about um stuff being destroyed by fire and stuff like that uh there is a lot of symbolic language in the book of Revelation. And I don't mean that to say that it's not true. Sure. I mean that to say that there is words used to describe what's happening, uh, but it might not necessarily be the actual happening of it. And if it is, that's great too. Yep. What I'm trying to get at, though, where I'm going with this line of thought, uh, if you look throughout Scripture, uh, so God created heaven and earth, mankind, garden sinned creation is now in sin come to the story of noah and the flood god says he'll never destroy the earth like that again and then he makes a covenant with noah there there's a sign of it fast forward to the israelites god threatens to wipe out all of israel and start over again with moses yeah and moses pleads and is like no don't and god okay i won't let's continue this and continuing his plan to bring christ who will then renew his people. What I'm getting at is God is not in the business of completely and utterly wiping the earth of everything. He's in the business of renewing it. Yeah, totally. He's in the business of, uh, I don't know if there's an equivalent, rev- <coughs> renovations. My yeah. wife and I, Aaron, and I just bought a house a year or so ago. And when we found some things about it that we do not like, we didn't demolish the house and build a completely new one. No. We took those pieces and we change them. Yeah. Sometimes that meant taking something out entirely. Totally. And replacing it with something better. Mm-hmm. But then there are other times where we took, uh, we had a wall in a weird place that we did not like. It was it was not according to what we would have had as a plan. Sure. And so we took that wall out, but we built a, an island there. But the part of the supports of that island are parts of that wall that was already there. <coughs> sure. That's one of the ways in my humanness that I try to understand yep. what God is doing with us and our hearts is that he He gives us a new heart, but he doesn't necessarily give us a new mind. Mm. We're, we are in a process of renovation where we are 
learning yeah. what it means to live in this kingdom that he has brought to earth. Totally. And then when he returns, he will bring that kingdom in full force. Yes. Yep. That's good. What a great way to end. We did it. Woo! The last the longest two, podcast ever. The last two weeks of Theology 101. I, my, my hope is that, okay, yeah, there's a lot of good. We want to understand correctly, right, and have a good knowledge of redemption and what it means. But my hope is that it just leaves you, like, in awe of everything that God has done for us. Like, it's just amazing how how rich our salvation and redemption is. So that's that's my hope. Um, as always, if you do if you do have more questions, uh, maybe we gave you more questions than answers. You can always message us, and we do a weekly podcast. I don't know if you know that. Uh, you can search in iTunes or Spotify or Google or whatever uh, North Peace Roundtable podcast. And uh, if we get a bunch of questions in, we'll just yep. tackle it on the podcast. And uh, Or you can just come stop by the office or send us an email or whatever. Uh, but maybe I'll just pray to close, and then uh, we'll be done. So, Father, thank you for your word and how rich it is. Thank you for just a, a good you know two and a half hours to just discuss theology. And uh, I pray that it would be beneficial for people, that it wouldn't be boring or just distracting. Uh, I pray that it would help people uh, ha- just their view of you to grow deeper, um, that their love of you would grow deeper, that you would just use this to uh, help our faith to become clearer and clearer and how amazing you are, God, in the fact that you save us and that you apply redemption to us. So just thank you, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll talk to you later.